today. Oh, I can't believe it. The final message in our Gospel of John series. 16 months, almost 60 sermons. A final vision of Jesus in John, that is. A final word from Jesus in John. And then some final questions for us to ask ourselves with a final call. I don't mean a last call, I mean the ultimate call. Before we read, let me go ahead and give you the context. You may be joining us for the first time. We've been in John for, as I said, 16 months, and we've gone all the way through, and we're at the very end. Jesus came, he lived, he taught, he did signs, he spoke, he called, he was crucified. He was raised from the dead, from the tomb on the third day. He has already appeared to Mary Magdalene and to the 11 disciples together. John 21 is his third appearance recorded in John. It's to seven disciples who are out fishing. And one of the disciples is going to be the focus. John is going to focus on one disciple. And Jesus is going to speak to that one disciple. Stand with me in honor of God's word. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the two sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fi fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. 
He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that, the, that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is God's word. You may be seated. First question is what's going on in John? The end of chapter 20 sounds like the conclusion of the whole book. He said, this book was written. These signs are written. All of this is written that you might believe. Sounds like a good place to stop. So why is there a John chapter 21? Now, multiple answers could be given to that. And trust me, commentators have given all of them. Here's the only one I'm going to give you. To finish up with Peter, that's why. Actually, to finish up with Jesus and Peter. Now, John is that beloved disciple, that other disciple that got mentioned a handful of times in this chapter and is mentioned throughout the whole book. That's the writer, the gospel writer, John. John and Peter are very close. These men are mentioned together often, particularly in the last days of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. You might remember that at the Last Supper, the night before Jesus died, Peter motioned to John, who was leaning back on Jesus' chest, to ask who was going to betray him. Then when Peter denied Jesus, it was John who knew the servant standing at the door it was John who said to the servant, let Peter come into the courtyard, the courtyard where Peter denied Jesus. It's Peter and John who are the two named disciples who went to the empty tomb on Resurrection Sunday. And here we are in the final chapter, and they are mentioned together in the boat. They're mentioned together by name in the boat and on the shore. 
John and Peter are very close. And you'll notice that John is very candid about Peter's personality. About how Peter is always talking. And about how Peter is impulsive. He's always acting without thinking. And John is very candid about Peter's denial of Jesus. When Peter was asked, aren't you one of his disciples? Peter said, I am not. And John recorded all three of them. And I imagine, given the events of John 21, that Peter was restored by Christ, that Peter would have given John approval to be this candid had he been alive when Peter wrote the gospel when John wrote the gospel John comes back to Peter specifically to tell us what happened to him but in so doing it's more it's it's about more than Peter this is the final vision that John gives us in his gospel of Jesus of Jesus and it's a final word that John gives us in his gospel from Jesus. I'm so grateful for John 21. Three parts to this chapter as we take it today. First, we're going to walk with Peter. Second, we're going to get a vision of Jesus. And third, we're going to ask the final questions and hear the final call. First, let's walk with Peter. He's called Simon Peter. His name is Simon Jesus added the Peter in John chapter 1. Peter is obviously the leader. He's the focus of John 21. In verse 2, he's named first among the list. Peter, as I said, is a man of action. He's always acting. First action that he takes, he says in verse 3, I'm going fishing. Now that doesn't mean necessarily that he's turned his back on his calling as an apostle. He doesn't even understand completely what his calling as an apostle is going to be. It does mean that he's a fisherman and he had to go to work. Little life lesson there. If you don't know what to do, just go to work. The Lord will find you. The others joined him. They caught nothing. At daybreak, Jesus appeared on the shore. He called them children. We don't know that Jesus was older than any of these, or at least half of them. But he says, children. Do you have any fish? Disciples. No. Jesus, cast the net on the right side and you'll get some fish. They do it. Large catch. 153. Yes, they counted them. Large fish. Every fisherman knows you count your fish. John, the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter. There they are together again. It is the Lord. Peter, our man of action, put on his outer garment because he had taken it off for work and he threw himself into the sea. He could have just gone back in the boat. There was enough room. They all got back safely, but not Peter. He's got to be that guy. He jumps in, he swims to the shore, they follow, they meet Jesus 
who's making breakfast. And Jesus said, bring me some of your fish, the fish that you have caught. Peter, our man of action, verse 11, goes to the boat by himself and hauls all 153 fish out of the boat onto the shore. They ate breakfast with Jesus, bread and fish. But they didn't ask, who is this? Because they knew it was the Lord. It would be helpful, I don't know, I think, just to stop and imagine, what was that breakfast like? There's no more question. They know who this is. They're convinced. Everybody's a believer. Bread and fish. Early in the morning. I still think it was rather quiet. Because they don't know what's coming after this. Verse 14, John tells us, this is the third revelation of Jesus to his disciples, the one he records. Now we come to verse 15, and here's the significant moment for Peter's life and the significant moment in this passage. It's a restoration that comes in a cycle of three, and it comes three times. Three times there is a question, a response, and a commission. But for Peter, it's a little different. For Peter, it's three times grief and contrition, a confession of his love, and a restoration to Jesus. Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Says it three times. But the first time he said it, in verse 15, he added something. He said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What did Jesus mean? Do you love me more than these? Well, you might think he looked down and he saw the fish. And he said, do you love me more than you love the fish? In other words, do you love me more than you love your work? Or he could have said, do you love me more than these? And pointed to the disciples. Do you love me more than you love the disciples? Do you love me more than you love your friends? Do you love me, Peter, more than anything else, your work and your friends? Could be. Or... He might be saying, Peter, do you love me more than these disciples do? Is your love for me greater than theirs? I think that's what Jesus is saying. Because Matthew records that Peter actually boasted about loving Jesus more than the other disciples did. He said, if all others fall away, I will never fall away. In other words, Jesus, I love you more than anybody else does. And so when Jesus says, do you love me more than these, more than these disciples do is probably what he's saying. This shows Peter's pride. C.S. Lewis said the essence of pride is that it is competitive. Pride claims more. Pride wants more than others have. Pride is about more. Peter, I love you more than they do. So Jesus says this to him. Do you love me more than these? Because he's reminding Peter of his own words. He's reminding people of his own Peter of his own words. He's not saying, I told you so. He doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to be smart about it. But he wants to bring contrition. 
He wants to bring humility because he loves Peter and he wants to sanctify him. So he says, do you really love me more than these? He's leading him along. We're walking with Peter as Jesus leads him. So Peter, that Jesus three times, do you love me? Peter, three times, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But look what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I love you. He doesn't say, Jesus, you know I love you more than these disciples do. He's done with that. He's learned his lesson. He's denied Christ. He can't claim more than anybody else. And that's not even important in the first place. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But look what John adds. The third time, John tells us that Peter was grieved because Jesus asked this. He was grieved in his heart. And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know everything. You know I love you. Now, some think that Peter was grieved because there's a little word play going on here with the word love. The first and second time, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And the word love there comes from the word agape, supreme love. But when Peter answers the first time, he doesn't say, yes, Lord, you know I love you, using the same word for love. He changes the word love. He says, Lord, you know I love you. And that kind of love is more of an affection love. So here, after he's known his own failure, he can't bring himself to say, I love you with this supreme love. And the third time, though, Jesus changes his word for love and says, Peter, do you even love me with affection? And some say that's what grieved Peter. Again, maybe. But the text actually tells us specifically why Peter was grieved. Verse 17. He was grieved because Jesus said it a third time. He was grieved because he's brought for the third time to the realization of his sin. He's brought a third time to the grief of his sin, to humility. Three questions corresponding with three denials. This causes grief. And then back to Jesus, three times said, feed my lambs first, verse 15. Verse 16, then tend my sheep. Then verse 17, feed my sheep. Again, some see here nuance and different emphasis and meanings with feed and tend and sheep and lambs. But the point is certainly this. At this moment, Peter is restored. He is restored to fellowship with Christ. Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. Peter loved Christ. I don't want to get ahead of myself in this sermon, but it's so hard not to keep going there. But think on it. Peter loved Christ. Yes, he denied him, but he loved him. And Jesus didn't say, how can you say that you love me? He said, do you love me? He let him confess his love again. See, that's not, it's one thing to shame someone. How can you say you love me? That would be a shaming. No, he grieved him. That's a good thing. Do you love me? Because he's leading him to contrition. Again, I'm a bit ahead of myself. 
He's being restored to fellowship with Christ. But look what else. He's being restored to service to Christ. Feed and tend. I've got a task for you. I've got, I've got something for you to accomplish. I can use you. I'm going to cleanse you and humble you and make you holy so I can use you for my purposes. The Lord is so gracious. Restored. A broken-hearted, grieved, exposed, I mean exposed your name in the Bible. Dealt with by Jesus, but in total grace. He's been led along. We've walked with him through it. Three questions, three confessions, three times, feed, ten, feed, now. He is restored. Yes, we say yes, and what we want to do is we want to close up our Bibles and say, yes, he's restored. We're done. Let's go home. All's well, right? Well, there's a verse 18. Heaven is rejoicing. A sinner has repented. But Jesus is preparing Peter for what's to come. And here's what we need to see here. He's restored, but he is not removed from this world. He is restored, but he is not removed from his service. He is restored, but he is not removed from the hardship to come. Verse 18. Strange saying right here at this moment. What is Jesus talking about? Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old... You will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Folks, this is not about getting old. It's not about getting to a place in life where you can't do for yourself and other people have to do for you. That's not what he's talking about here. Verse 19 tells you what he's talking about. He's talking about how Peter is going to die. And how Peter's death is going to glorify God. He says, stretch out your hand. He doesn't mean someday you're going to be so old that your hands are going to be so feeble that people are going to have to lead you along by your hands. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, stretch out your hands, that you will stretch out your hands as a reference to Peter also will stretch out his hands and his arms because a crossbeam will be laid across his shoulders and they will carry him out and lead him out where he doesn't really want to go, which is to his place of crucifixion. He too is going to be nailed to the cross as Jesus was. Strange. When Jesus called the apostle Paul, Acts chapter 7 or, or 9, he said, I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer for me. Strange. How Jesus treats his apostles and his people. Here, Jesus calls Peter to service and says, I've restored you, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, and you're going to stretch out your hands. History tells us about 30 years after Jesus said that, after Peter's apostleship, after caring for the church, after he wrote the epistle, his epistles, which are, by the way, about suffering. Early church sources tell us that Peter was crucified by Nero in Rome, upside down. 
And Jesus knew that, and he revealed that before it ever happened. And still, he said, verse 19, follow me. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. Are you, does, is that landing on you? Jesus knew how Peter was going to die. And it was not a natural death. It was a crucifixion upside down. And he was crucified that way because he was going to follow Jesus. And still Jesus, knowing that, said to him, follow me. Peter, verse 20, and John again are mentioned together. In verse 21, Peter is still Peter. He turns and says, what about this man? How is he going to die? And Jesus is still Jesus. He said, one, one paraphrase that you can imagine I read was, mind your business. But that's not really what Jesus said. He said, if it's my will that he remain till I come, you know, what, what is that to you? You follow me. And then the gospel begins to come to a close. The gospel of John closes with some personal words about John. Verse 23, this is how rumors get started. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. Yet that's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say he wouldn't die. He said, if it be my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Rumors get started when people misrepeat the actual words that were said or when they just miss the point altogether because the point was not about how John was going to die. It was about how Peter was going to die. And verse 24, John's testimony is true. Verse 25. Jesus did so much more that the world couldn't hold the books if everything was recorded, but we have enough. What do we have enough for? We've walked with Peter through the final chapter, but we're not done because we have enough here for second big point, a vision of Jesus. The Gospel of John presents Jesus that we might believe. We've been in John these 16 months and we saw the numerous signs that Jesus did. I hope you remember the definition of a sign in the Gospels. It's a miracle with meaning. It's not just a display of power. It's a miracle that means it's pointing to something. Jesus did signs. Jesus made statements, the I am statements. He did all of this so that we could get a vision of Jesus. But if we drew... From the last chapter only, chapter 21, the account of Peter being restored by Jesus, we would get a vision of Jesus that looks like this. First, we would see that Jesus is all-knowing. Jesus knows. After the restoration, at the end of John, Jesus knows and Jesus shows the kind of death that Peter will die to glorify him. Jesus knows. He knows all things because he's Lord. John has been telling us that from the beginning. Chapter 2, it says, Jesus knew what was in the heart of people. That's why he wouldn't tell everybody exactly who he was. Because he knew that people had hardness and unbelief in their heart. Chapter 6, John tells us, 
Jesus knew when the people planned to take him by force and make him some kind of earthly king for the wrong reasons in the wrong way at the wrong time. He knew that. That's why he slipped away. Chapter 13, John told us Jesus knew that his hour had come. None of this caught him off guard when he sat down at that meal in John chapter 13 and then rose from that meal and washed those disciples' feet. He knew exactly what was coming. He knew Judas was going to get right up out of there and go betray him. He knew Peter was going to deny him. He knew a cross was waiting. Jesus knew all of this. In fact, John tells us in chapter 2 that Jesus not only knew it all, but Jesus knew that all of it was for the whole purpose for him to come and die and be buried and be raised on the third day that he might save us from our sins and grant us life. Jesus told everybody it was going to happen years before it ever happened. And yet with that knowledge, Jesus was neither paralyzed nor did he prevent it from happening. With that knowledge, Jesus went right forward in the predetermined plan of his Father. Jesus knows all things. We know a few things. And we only know what we know because Jesus has told us. But we don't know most things. Don't you love it when people tell you that they know what's going to happen? You see, you only do that once or twice and show yourself to be wrong, and then you just stop doing it, or at least smart people do. We don't know what's going to happen. He hasn't told us most of what's going to happen. He's only told us the few things that are going to happen that matter. But we know that Jesus knows. And that's why we follow Jesus. The second thing we see about Jesus, the vision, one he knows, knows all things. Second, he loves. Steadfast, committed, covenant, demonstrated, purposeful love. I always put all those things in front of the word love when we're talking about Jesus and God's love because their love is different than ours. We use one word for all of those things that in the Greek language there were different words for. We usually say we love hot dogs and people in the same breath. The love of Jesus is steadfast, committed, covenantal, entered into a covenant signed by his own blood, demonstrated on the cross to shed that blood, purposeful, driving toward an end. It's that kind of love. John told us in chapter 13, he loved his own who were in the world, the disciples, and he loved them to the end. And here we are at the end and he's loving Peter. And this is how he loves you and me. Objection, someone may say. He grieved Peter on, in this last chapter. And he told Peter he was going to be crucified. He didn't stop it. How do you call that love? Well, why don't you just let Peter answer that? You know, I was, we were working through the book of Job, and the question kept coming to my mind. And, you know, how could God let that happen to Job? And what was God doing in the life of Job? And here I was wringing my hands trying to answer this question. And then it dawned on me, wait a minute. 
Why am I trying to answer the question? Let Job answer the question. It's Job the one who is suffering, and he said at the end, my eyes have seen you now, and I know you can do all things. Same with Peter. How can we say that Jesus loved Peter when he grieved him so much in this last chapter and he told him he was going to be crucified and he was and he was crucified upside down? Well, let's let, let's let Peter answer the question because he did. He wrote a letter called First Peter. And this is what this man said. He said, it's blessed to suffer with Jesus for righteousness sake. He said, we should rejoice in sharing Christ's sufferings because doing so will lead us to sharing his glory. Peter said that. I didn't make that up. Peter said, entrust your soul to God in your suffering because after you suffer for a little while, the God of all grace will restore you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you. In light of this, in, in light of the salvation and the eternal glory that, that Peter knew was to come, Peter saw no disconnect between the love of Christ for him and the fact that he was going to suffer for the sake of Christ. None whatsoever, and nor should we. We shouldn't let anything, anything keep us from believing that Christ loves us and prevent us from having confidence in his love. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. That's Romans 8. And you know what's listed in that list of things that people think might separate us from the love of Christ? Suffering? No, nothing separates us from the love of Christ. Jesus loves. A third thing is Jesus has all power. We see him keeping his disciple, his apostle, all the way to him to the end he's keeping him by convicting him he's keeping him by leading him along this path of confession he's keeping him in his keeping grace john chapter 10 no one will snatch not one of his sheep from his hand john 17 jesus said to the father i didn't lose one of those whom you gave me jesus is powerful enough to keep you and me for all of eternity and we should rest in that we should rest in that there should be no fretting in our lives we should know that he's going to get us all the way home now he will take us on a journey like he took peter i'm getting to that too but there should be no fretting he will keep us and he will keep us all the way to the end and Jesus is gracious. That's a, a fourth thing. He restores. He is far more gracious than we are. Far more gracious than we are. He's far more convicting than we are. Jesus knows how to get us really convicted. <laughs> and he's far better at correcting than we are. Because he's perfect. And his forgiveness runs infinitely deeper than ours does. And Jesus will restore. He's so much better at restoring than we are. We either cut people slack or we condemn them. Jesus does neither of those things. He takes us all the way to the point of restoration. And he will restore you. You may have wandered so far. Even, even, if you, even if you haven't wandered in your behavior, your heart and your mind may be so far away from Christ today 
that you wonder if you can ever get home. Jesus will get you home. He will restore you. And finally, on this point, Jesus is determined to make us holy. Don't forget that the grace of God is also to make you godly. That's biblical, Bible grace. Grace is to restore, grace is to forgive, and grace is also to make us holy because Jesus is determined to make us holy. The Lord stays at it. That's what He's doing. The Lord is staying at it in your life. If you, if you feel the contrition and the conviction and you say, what's going on here? I thought the Lord loved me. He's doing that because He loves you. This is the path to holiness. He stays at it. Convicting and correcting and instructing. He disciplines those whom He loves. He's conforming us to Christ. Because when we're made holy, we see Him. He actually said that, pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The holiness is so we will see the Lord. He's making us holy so we will serve Him. Cheap and shallow and powerless grace. Like, lighten up. Go easy on yourself. Jesus affirms you as you are. This is not gospel grace. Gospel grace is this. Jesus did everything necessary to save you from your sin, from yourself, from death, and from hell, and you've contributed nothing. And Jesus is currently doing everything necessary to make you holy. That is gospel grace. He's doing everything necessary to make you like Him him so that you can enjoy him in holiness forever and if that makes you wince let me quote the book of Titus for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people training and instructing us the grace of God is training and instructing us to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and, and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That is grace. Grace saves. Grace redeems. Grace restores. Grace trains. Grace instructs. Grace purifies. Grace makes holy a people for God's own possession. That's what Jesus did for Peter on the beach that day and every day the rest of his life and that's what Jesus wants to do for you and me and that's why Jesus said follow me 
Final questions. Do you see Jesus? That's how this whole book started. A couple of John the Baptist's disciples left John the Baptist and went to Jesus. And Jesus said, come and see. And John has taken us on a journey with Jesus to see Jesus. Have you been paying attention? Read it, look at it, and see Jesus as he is. Second question, do you believe in him? That's how this whole thing ends. Doubting Thomas touches him. And Jesus said, don't be unbelieving, be believing. He believed. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Faith believes, faith confesses. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Faith follows, which is the third question. Will you follow Christ? This whole thing started in chapter 2. Jesus said, follow me in person for three years. And by the time we get to chapter 21, he says, follow me in the Spirit for the rest of your life. And we'll follow the Lamb all the way home. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for John.